Hello and welcome to another episode of Sensational She Geek Live from Yancey Street. Today is Friday, August 13th, 2021, and this is episode 29B. It is Friday the 13th, as I mentioned before on previous episodes. I always considered Friday the 13th to be a bit of a good luck. It comes around once in a blue moon. That feels like a good luck kind of thing. So let's let's ride that happy wave and while we go through today's episode because I have a really great podcast episode planned for today. There was a lot to go off of in the past couple of days. Um, it's it's going to be a lot of really good stuff. We're going to start things off with the comic book pick list. These were comics that came out this week that I found noteworthy and enjoyable. Uh, before we go into free comic book day 2021, there are about 50 comics coming out for free comic book day on the 14th which is saturday that is tomorrow as of when i am now and we're gonna go over a handful of those comics things that i either think expect to be really good things that may end up being valuable in the future or just relevant to things that i'm currently reading after that we have three different tv shows to talk about Three. Starting off, we're going to do first What If, episode one. It's on Disney Plus. It premiered this Wednesday. The first episode was What If Captain Carter Were the First Avenger. It's a lot to talk about for that. After that, we're going to go into Titans season three. HBO Max dropped the first three episodes of Titans season three yesterday on the 12th. So that is all available. And I will be talking about all of what happens there. There was a lot to discuss. So we'll be going over all of that in due time before the third show that we'll talk about is going to be Taika Waititi's Reservation Dogs. We have two episodes that are up. I watched them on Hulu. I believe it premieres on FX. Can't recommend it enough if you are a fan of Taika Waititi projects and his sense of humor. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. After we get through the TV shows that we're going to be discussing, uh, we're going to talk about some, uh, just some general news things in the industry, starting off with Dark Knights of Steel, a new project coming for DC Comics from Tom Taylor and Yasmin Putri. Big, big thing for fantasy fans. Uh, We also have an announcement about the casting for the show Wednesday on Netflix, which I only just discovered was even happening. It's about Wednesday Addams. We have all of the details about that show and when it will be coming. We also have some news about the live-action Avatar, also on Netflix, which I also just discovered was a thing that exists. We'll talk about who has been cast in that, who is running that, and what to kind of expect for that series as Netflix has a bad reputation with their live-action anime. (laughs) Shudder thinking about it. And then we are going to talk about some more news. Tim Drake having been confirmed as a member of the LGBTQ plus community. It's a really big deal. Why is it a big deal? Well, I actually found a really great article on Nerdist by writer Eric Diaz. Gotta give him credit because this was a phenomenal phenomenal article and I'm going to read it to you because he does an excellent job of breaking down why this is important and what it means and what we hope to see from this development going forward in the comics. Finally, the episode is going to finish off with a bit of just a fun a fun piece on on Jungle Cruise. I did watch Jungle Cruise and it is almost point for point a remake of The Mummy, the original Mummy with Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weiss. We will talk about how that 
at all is similar to one another, how those two projects are so similar. Uh, and that will be how we wrap up the episode. So we have we have quite a bit to look forward to here. It's going to be a long episode. Um, I hope that you all have something to look forward to within this because we have so much to talk about between the comic picks, free comic book day, the three different TV shows that we're talking about, and all of the all of the big ticket news items. This is going to be a fun podcast episode. Before we really get started here, I do want to uh, put out some little smaller, very minor announcements, things that don't really fit in their own news segment first. I do have a new Redbubble store. Um, I have been designing some stickers and things, and I've kind of discovered the best way to sell those as of right now without putting in a ton of money to get them sent to myself. First off is through Redbubble. So if you're at all curious in my superhero and alternative theme stickers, you can uh, check out the She Geek shop on Redbubble. There's a number of things there. I believe I have nine designs that are up. They are stickers, they are posters, they are t-shirts. Redbubble does all of that fun stuff. So um, check those out if you are interested in that. Otherwise, as I've been saying before, I did check, I did set up a podcast Patreon program. If you would like to support the podcast through donations, that is the best way to do that. If you feel the podcast is worth the cost of a comic book a month, the cost of a streaming service, the cost of a rental movie, whatever you may feel uh, is appropriate for you know, the enjoyment and entertainment that you get out of the podcast. Entirely voluntary, but again, if you do wish to do that, you can check it out under Patreon. Uh, I have it just as Sensational Shiki. It should be pretty easy to find. You can also find me online. As usual, my Instagram is Anna with the comics because my name is Anna and I do have the comics. I have only posted once uh, as far as regular posts go in the past month, so don't expect it to be uh, a total huge influx of information and posts on Instagram. It's more of just a hobby page. Um, and you can also find me on Twitter, Savage She Geek. It's really where I post any updates for the podcast. If I have to delay things or switch things around, that's where I post all of that. My website is sensationalshegeek.weebly.com. I gotta have the Weebly extension in there because I don't pay for the domain. And there you can find all of the writing that I did previous to starting the podcast. Um, written reviews, discussions, pull lists, pick lists, things like that. Um, you can also find podcast notes. I take uh, fairly extensive notes throughout the week to prepare myself for the semi-weekly podcast episodes so that I don't get too far off track. So you can find those podcast notes. I do post to Weebly as often as I, as I can remember to. And so if you are someone who prefers to read the podcast to keep up as opposed to listening or if you are hearing impaired, you can still keep up with the uh, activities of the podcast and what we're talking about that way. Some other news to briefly discuss before we get going. There was this morning uh, a Moon Knight image leak that may or may not be real. Um, if it is, good for it. Um, it's a, it's a, just a first image or two-ish that we have of potential Moon Knight costumes that Oscar Isaac will be wearing. It's relevant because there's been some concern about the you know, a fairly light-skinned-ish guy in a white hood and a white cloak. It can look really bad if they were to translate his costume to just being like a white suit with a white hood and a white cloak. That doesn't really look so good. So checking out this picture, you can check it out online if it still exists. I'm sure people have saved it and reposted it absolutely everywhere by now. 
uh, he looks pretty good. It's it's a very blurry picture, um, and a lot of people are getting oddly upset about it, which I find extremely humorous because we don't even know if this is real. Uh, it looks like a video game screenshot. It looks like maybe it's fan-made. But if it is real, they seem to be doing a fairly decent job at keeping the Klansmen out of uh, Oscar Isaac's costume so that he does not look like a white supremacist. <laughs> Uh, the second image that came out from Noom Night, I probably should have left this later in the episode, but the second image that came out from it just a little bit ago is actually a much darker suit. Um, I would just like to put out the theory that I've been having really since the start of this whole Moon Knight thing. I think that this is actually three actors who are playing Moon Knight. Oscar Isaac is one of them and they have the other two under wraps and that would be why we potentially see Moon Knight in two different suits. That being said, Ethan Hawke is playing the villain of this who we don't necessarily know who he is, though in a recent interview he did say that he is basing his character off of, I don't recall the name, but it's a famous cult leader from, I believe, the 80s? I'm not sure what, what era that was. Um, so my theory is that Ethan Hawke's character is going to belong to some kind of cult of Khonshu, and Moon Knight is going to have to go up against him about that. Uh, finally, we have a delay once again on Venom Let There Be Carnage. It was supposed to come out this fall slash late summer. It has been delayed once again. It is now coming out on October 15th. It's just going to keep getting delayed until things change. <laughs> half the world's closing back down and the other half is opening back up. So we'll see if we ever actually get to see Let There Be Carnage. If you're someone who wants to go ahead and skip over the comic book portion of this, which for this episode actually means the comic book pick list as well as the new comic book day suggested reading for this Saturday, jump to about 41 and a half minutes in. I'll be wrapping up the new, uh, the free comic book day uh, suggestions and we'll be moving on to what if. Let's go ahead and jump right into the comic book pick list. For this week, I have a number of things we're going to be discussing. Captain Marvel number 31, Mbamo number 2, Daredevil number 33, Defenders number 1, Fight Girls number 2, America Chavez number 5, and Fantastic Four Life Story number 3. Starting off with Captain Marvel number 31, I have been very critical of Kelly Thompson's Captain Marvel series of late. This issue was a definite step forward in a better direction, but still had a lot of issues that I didn't quite that didn't quite track for me. Uh, I did love seeing interior artist Takeshi Miyazawa on Captain Marvel. They have an excellent style. They just finished up the Silk series with Maureen Goo. Although they're only on this one issue, I still am very much not a fan of the rotating interior artists that we have a new artist on every single issue of Captain Marvel, and that is so distracting and is so hard to keep up with. You wouldn't really think of it, but it, it, it really takes you out of the story when every single issue has a completely different art style. This issue um, went back to Carol being with Rhodey, after that whole hullabaloo of the last arc where they broke up for literally no reason and she wouldn't have had sex with Doctor Strange and then now everybody's pretending that just didn't happen. Because <laughs> she's back with Rhodey like it never happened. <laughs> and they're going on vacation again, trying to go back to the vacation that they had tried to start, gosh, two arcs ago? An arc and a half ago? Whenever it was that Carol first got sent to the future, um... That was when she was originally supposed to be going on this vacation with Rhodey. And now they decided to take a plane to their vacation. Not sure why, because obviously people recognize Carol 
and she seems surprised when people start recognizing her and asking for autographs. Carol, this is not new for you. You should not be surprised when you go on a public transportation kind of situation and people recognize you. That was one thing that I, uh, right from the get-go just didn't, didn't make sense. Carol knows she's famous. People are going to recognize her. Why would she be surprised when people recognize her? But anyway, her sister, her half-sister, L'Oreal, who is the Cree accuser and my biggest love. I'm kidding. I love my husband. Um, shows up and tells her that she needs her for some business involving their mother, who was Cree, of course. And she takes her to a Cree facility where the genetic material of Cree warriors is made into new baby warriors. That's how pretty much the Cree make their soldiers. That's how L'Oreal was made. Not how Carol was made because she was born on Earth uh, with a human father. Um, but they just take the genetic material of their best warriors and mush them up together to make better warriors. And it just keeps going. It's a cycle that just goes on and on and on. Including Carol's mother's DNA or genetic material and that of Marvel, the original Captain Marvel. Now, this is where they really lost me with this issue. Um, it's fun. It's vacation. It's sister stuff. It's family stuff. It's boyfriend stuff. And then they arrive at this facility and suddenly they just decide to go to the basement and they just start fighting this sentient gooby thing. Gooby glob, globby goob. Um, <laughs> it doesn't really make sense why they decided to go look down there or why they, like, it just came out of nowhere. Um, and I, I, I did check because I have been wrong before. I did go and I checked what other readers are saying about it and they have the same feeling is that Things were going fairly normally for the series, and then all of a sudden they just go, let's go to the basement and check out what's going on down there. Oh no, it's a gloomy glob thing. It's sentient. And it turns into Marvel and like has like evil intentions or something for Marvel. I don't I don't really know. Like I said, it was a very <laughs> suddenly oddly confusing. It was for absolutely no reason suddenly they're fighting this glob monster. <laughs> they showed up because L'Oreal was going to tell her about something and they showed up and then she didn't have a chance to tell her because suddenly they were fighting the gloomy glob guy. Like, <laughs> I feel like we skipped a whole chapter of the story. <laughs> but whatever. Um, it's, it's just kind of goes along with Kelly Thompson rushing her work. I partially attribute that to her having so many projects going right now, both in Marvel and in other publishers. So, um... I guess just time will tell if this is going to take a turn for what I would consider the better or if they're kind of going to be continuing with this plodding along but not quite making sense. It's it's decent, but it could be a lot better. Um, and it's not necessarily the story that needs to be better, but the actual, like, the math that gets the story to where it needs to go is what needs to kind of be improved on. People's... Um, their reasons for doing things just don't really make sense. Like Carol on the plane, like, oh, I'm so surprised people are like acting all fawning over me. What? You're, you've been famous for like 60 years, lady. You know people are going to recognize you when you go out in public. It's just the, 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 different, the different bits and pieces that add up to this issue didn't quite match up. Um, but I'm hoping that with more L'Oreal, hopefully, in the next couple of issues and a lot more of Carol's uh, cornerstone characters being the other Captain Marvels and Ms. Marvels and everything like that, um, they're all not 
familial related to her, but they're all related to her in the fact that they're all somehow intertwined. Their lives have been somehow intertwined through some way or another. Um, so hopefully that she'll be able to, Kelly Thompson will be able to lean on that relationship or those relationships really well and improve the next couple of issues because she does do really, really well when it's Carol and people who are friendly to her. Some of the best issues, I've said it a lot of times before, definitely some of the best issues that Kelly Thompson has ever written of Captain Marvel are the issues where she is surrounded by the people who love and care about her because she writes those relationships really well. So I'm hoping we get a little bit more of that as we head further into whatever this new arc is going to be. Mama number two, I am still completely head over heels of this series. It is entirely by Sass Millage. I'm sorry if I mispronounced that. I am terrible with pronouncing names. I try, but I suck. This was a excellent second issue. I am still completely enamored by how much it feels like a Studio Ghibli project between the art style, the coloring, the storytelling, the themes, the age of the characters, the little fam, the little um, like familiars that she has, the the just the fantasy elements of the world, the bits of magic seeping out of the corners that are just kind of part of their reality. So much Studio Ghibli. I just, I, if you are at all a fan of Studio Ghibli, this is a series that you need to be reading. Um, the last issue ended with the ghost of Mamo popping up and haunting this young girl and her family in their house. In this issue, using the, the hedge witch's magic, who was Mamo's granddaughter, the two girls are able to find a bone, a bone, a bone of Mamo in the hearth. Um, the little witch uses some some magical stuff to summon the spirit of the hearth and the spirit uh, shows her the bone that he had been trying to make it fit into the home and the hearth, but it didn't belong there. Um, and it was a witch's bone, so it was being haunted by Mamo, causing the mother of the family to be sick as well. It was really just putting a lot of ill will into the house. So once they get the bone out of the house and everybody's okay again, this hedge witch and her new friend go looking about town for more of Mamo's bones. The witch, she thinks that it's her, her bones are going to form some kind of pattern. She has a little bit of knowledge about these things, but is still fairly fairly um, green with everything. It's, it's very clear. Um, they decide that they're going to use news of local like oddities and things that are going on that are bizarre to find the bones, assuming that these odd things that are happening are because of Mamo's ghost, her spirit. Um, so they get to searching, but then it starts to turn out that a lot of these local disruptions from the Fae and whatnot aren't directly due to Mamo's bones. They've only found one bone, but they went through a number of different disruptions through the community solving problems, and none of them were directly due to a physical bone being there. So there's something else going on negatively affecting the area as well, perhaps connected to whoever it was that spread Mamo's bones out like this, because clearly that was not something that was supposed to happen after she died, but it did, and somebody had to have somebody had to have physically done that to make it happen. Um, so potentially connected into whoever this mystery third character is. I think Mamo's gonna be five or six issues. Not entirely sure, but I would consider it an all-ages comic. Um, definitely a lower limit on that all-ages line, um, but it's, for the most part, it's just a really enjoyable fantasy story. And again, 
completely Studio Ghibli in the most satisfying way possible. Daredevil 33 continues to be excellent with Chip Zartsky and Marco Cicchetto on art. This issue immediately reveals that the multiple bullseyes that we saw in the last issue are actually clones. Some really dumb scientists decided to clone Bullseye to solve whatever problem it was that they were given to solve. Obviously messed it up real bad because the Bullseyes got free, killed all the scientists, and now we see what's going on. It's not good. <laughs> Electra is still having a lot of issues with um, the Bullseyes, mainly, and trying to be a good daredevil for Hell's Kitchen when she is not used to working that way. Um, the bulk of her in this issue was honestly just trying to escape the bullseyes. She had run into them in the end of the last. This is a relationship between her and the real bullseye that is, hmm, tense. <laughs> Let's say that. Bullseye has killed a number of Daredevil's female companions, uh, Electra being one of them. I believe Karen Page was another one of them. So that's fun. Um, so this is now, this is a fight that's been coming for many, many years. A rematch that's been coming. Actually, I believe the proper rematch is going to be coming in two or three issues when Electra and Daredevil fight officially on purpose and they don't just like pop up on her and she's got to run away like in this issue. Um, but I'm really excited to see how that's going to turn out between the two of them. She has, it's probably going to be, by the time we get there, it'll probably be the main bullseye in her, not against multiple bullseyes. Thank God she wouldn't, as we saw in this issue, she would not survive very well through that. Um, but that, that's a fight I'm definitely looking forward to seeing. The other half of the issue with the Matt side of things, who remember Matt Murdock is in prison, but he's not in prison as Matt Murdock. He's in prison as Daredevil because comics. Uh, Detective Cole North is the uh, Chipsarsky creation from earlier on the series, who is a really awesome character, to be honest. He is called to the prison that Matt Daredevil is at because it's letting off some kind of gas and nobody really knows what to do. It's in like lockdown. So Cole goes inside and what he sees is like, honestly, probably a lot of people's nightmare. It's Daredevil sitting on top. They've like stacked all the like tables and chairs in the prison, like the Iron Throne in Game of Thrones and Daredevil sitting on the top of it. It's talking to stack like a king. Uh, and the other inmates are like just down on the ground, like being crazy and their eyes and their ears and their noses are bleeding. Something really not good is happening here. Um, and I'm not really sure I, I'm North, Detective North, he's just gonna have to wait this out and hope that it fades because Dare we as we saw, Daredevil with a symbiote attached to him was pretty bad. Daredevil with whatever this shit is, we don't even know because it's whatever that is, it's it's gonna be scary for people who go up against him like this. But um that's another reason that I absolutely love Daredevil is because he is this like very subdued kind of character um in a bit in the same way that spider-man is they have so much power behind them that they don't really utilize to the, the fullness that they could um but then if they do they are terrifying when they go all out they are like okay i'm scared i'm gonna go away now and not be a criminal anymore <laughs> um and that's zartsky actually writes uh daredevil and spider-man really really well for this series in that context of they're a little bit unhuman or rather inhuman but not in the marvel way like they're, they're just there's something not human uncanny not human about them you know 
It's great. I love I love how Zartsky writes that. Defenders number one is an Al Ewing. Um, I believe the interior artist was Jorge Corona, but I think I might be wrong. Um, a pretty fun first issue. Uh, being a fan of tarot cards myself, a user of tarot cards myself, it was kind of fun having them kind of loosely tying tarot in with the characters being pulled into the story and how everything was going. It, it didn't really... <laughs> there was definitely a lot that I just kind of um, breezed over as far as, like, why every, all this was happening. Um, but then you bring it all together and it seems that this is, okay, this is gonna be a cool story. You get uh, Harpy, you get Doctor Strange, you get Silver Surfer, you get Cloud, who is a... What did they say she was? She's... Well, they, because it's not a person. Um, they're a, a... Not an amoeba. Amoeba's totally different. Um, you know, the big thing bulbous thing out in space i'm words but you know uh she's cool <laughs> and then the phantom stranger too um who is a character that ewing has been kind of teasing pulling into the mainstream marvel universe for or other stories for like two years now um since marvel comics 1000 so that's finally he's popping up in something um the issue more or less ends with them if i recall they meet galactus's mom <laughs> which is really cool and that was probably not pick up a second issue if it wasn't for the fact that this first one brought in this completely left field character who we've never met before galactus's mom all right guys now remember galactus isn't always galactus he was a man at one point or you know humanoid at one point um i don't remember what his name was i didn't have any of that taken notes in front of me right now but um but then he goes and he turns into Galactus and becomes the eater of worlds. Um, and now we're going to see his mom. <laughs> For, I guess, when he was human, obviously. But um, I, I dig it. I think the tagline for the second issue is Galactus's mom has got it going on. And I've had that Stacy's mom song stuck in my head since I read the issue like two days ago. <laughs> it's it'll It should be pretty fun. Uh, the second issue, I'm, I'm going to check out, um, see what's up with Galactus's mom. <laughs> Fight Girls number two did not have it going on. Um, it was very meh. I only literally wanted to mention it at all is to just explain why I'm not going to be continuing it. Um, one reason is because I noticed it was a pretty, pretty obvious fault of this issue. Um, every single panel, every single woman in it, every single anything that happened looked like they were posing for a photograph. Even when they were falling or dying or, you know, fighting, they look like they're posing. Like they like they pose in a perfect, beautiful position. It doesn't look real. And I know Frank Cho can make it look real because he's he's not a new comic book interior drawer. He's been doing this for a while. Um, so I, I, I think he's trying to work a lot more off of the sex appeal of this than the just really good art because all of the all of the non-human characters in this the dinosaurs the giant turtle we had in this one they look stellar but the women it feels like he rushed like he got um reference photos of like models having pictures taken of them and that's what he used that's just the vibe that i got from it i could be completely wrong um but i just i'm a big fan of frank cho's art not a fan of the art in this series. It just doesn't live up to my expectations for Frank Cho art. 
America Chavez number five was the final issue of America Chavez Made in the USA. It's her second solo series. Better than the first. Um, We'll just start here. Um, So the whole thing we remember, yeah, like she's got the, like, for whatever reason, evil sister who is mad at her. Um, and then, you know, they, in this issue, she wants America to open some portal to another dimension to apparently let their mothers through. And America's like, well, they're dead. So how would that work? And she's just convinced that they're going to come back if she opens the portal. So America goes ahead and opens the portal for her. And then she falls through, not America, her sister. It was just a really weird like, sweeping it under the carpet way of dealing with this character. She's obviously gonna come back, and more than likely with a vengeance and be really horrible villainous, but why? We didn't have to do it this way. You just kind of, like, how do we solve this problem? Oh, just, just, she falls through a portal and she's gone. There you go. Deal. That's it. It just seems so odd. Um, and so then the issue ends with her, America introduces her, her, uh, her adopted family to her girlfriend and her friend Kay, tying together the two sides of her world as a whole. Great. Um, I did a little bit of looking into what other people thought about this issue, and it seems that they're all pretty much where I am here, is that the art was, like, ungodly beautiful. Um, the story was okay, but the retcon just sucked. If they had done everything in this except for the retcon of her origin, it would have been so much better. Um, but they, it really took her from being a very interesting character to a character who was just kind of like confused and forgot where she came from. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's good series. Better than the last one. Still missing a few points here. Fantastic Four Life Story number three is the last new comic book day pick that we are going to discuss here today. Um, I really, really enjoyed this issue. It is not written by Chip Zarsky the way the first series were, or the, excuse me, the, the first series was, was the Spider-Man life story. Um, the life story stuff goes through comic book history in real time. So instead of being like the 60s, Sue and Reed get married, and then the 80s, they have Franklin, and it's only been five years. It's actually been 20 years now. Sue is in her 40s. Johnny turns 40 in this issue. He was a teenager when this series started, just a few weeks ago in the 60s. So uh, you kind of get what's what what the difference is here. And there's a few, they, they hit various points through the team's history, but they change them for various ways. So what happens uh, in this issue, we have Franklin, he's already been born, there's no Valeria yet. He has having troubles at boarding school controlling his powers. Um, They're also mid-nuclear, or rather mid-Cold War. Uh, Nuclear war is imminent, so the mad thinker gets his way into the White House and basically decides that he's gonna have to basically destroy the world to make Galactus stop caring about coming to destroy the world, right? It, it kind of makes sense in a weird way. He's the mad thinker. It, it's a mad thinking thing to think. Um, the plan does not work. He tries to trigger uh, nuclear destruction from both sides, ends up not working. The heroes save the day. One missile does get through their line though, and it's up to Johnny to stop it over New York City. There was a really nice narration throughout this whole issue from Johnny. Um, really, really nice. Uh, I, I would read it as like an as like a poem practically because it it just it reads so well. 
um, talking about how, you know, life is a party. Um, everything that we do is just party tricks. And then he does his biggest party trick to save the bomb over New York City and absorbs all the flames as it goes off. Which, of course, does end up killing him. Um, really, really big moment. Then you get you get Sue and Reed having to reunite to get to the to to be at the funeral, um, and Sue's relationship with Namor is getting more and more stressed because he has his um, loyalty to the ocean and she has hers to the earth, and it's. I'm very very excited for the next couple of issues. The next issue is going to be in the '90s. Um, I don't know if we're going to get. I guess we're not going to get Valeria in this at all. Um, I kind of thought that she would possibly be Namor's daughter, but we're not. We're not getting her. So um, I'm. I'm loving this, even though we did just have Johnny die. Um, I'm. I'm. It makes it so much more interesting. What is going to happen with the team from here? Where are they going to go from here? Okay, Free Comic Book Day 2021 happens on Saturday, August 14th, which, as where I am sitting, is tomorrow on Saturday. Definitely some things that you're going to want to check out on here. I have a few things that I picked out out of the 50 total free comics that are going to be available. This is a couple of things that I picked out as being, I think they're going to be relevant, I think they're going to end up being worth something, or I just think they're going to be good in general. Starting off with the Enter the House of Slaughter. This is um, a kind of a follow-up to a series by James Tynion. He wrote Something is Killing the Children, which is a series that really, really took off last year. Um, it stars a character called Erica Slaughter, and this is going to be a lot of her backstory, her origin, and a bit of explanation of the whole world that she comes from. Um, this is one that if you're not really interested in the series, I would recommend picking up because it is, I think the number one of Something is Killing the Children goes for like 80-ish, I want to say, if not more at this point. Um, it, it's going for a ridiculous amount of money, It's but it's going to get bigger because I believe Tiny and has in talks to having some kind of show or something made from it. Um, so this would be one that you would want to check out just for the, for the topic or to save and get money off of having this free comic in the future. Marvel Gold Avengers Hulk. I don't know why it's called that. I think it's just because this is a gold level comic and they just call it Avengers Hulk because they have no imagination. Uh, what it says here is, who is the mysterious Avenger Prime and how will his advent impact on the past, the present, and the very future of the Mighty Avengers? This is written by Donny Cates and Jason Aaron, which I laughed when I saw because the two of them are writing things in comics for Marvel right now that I feel like are constantly fighting each other. Like, they're trying to one-up each other constantly with the stuff they're doing between Venom and Avengers and gosh, all the the Thor and just all the stuff they are both kind of working on at the same time. It's it's really funny. It looks like they're like fighting and then here they are working on something together. Zom 100 Bucket List and Demon Slayer Kimetsu Yaiba. So I'm sure I said that very wrong. These are two uh, mangas that are going to be released as a one 
comic, uh, one free comic book day release. For ZOM 100, it says, after spending years toiling away from the soul-crushing company, Akira's life has lost its luster. But when a zombie apocalypse ravages his town, it gives him the push he needs to live for himself. Now Akira is on a mission to complete all 100 items on his bucket list before he kicks the bucket. Demon Slayer is, says, in Taisho era Japan, kind-hearted Tanjiro Kamedo I'm sorry, makes a living selling charcoal, but his peaceful life is shattered when a demon slaughters his entire family. His little sister Nezuko is the only survivor, but she has been transformed into a demon herself. Tanjiro sets out on a difficult, dangerous journey to find a way to return his sister to normal and destroy the demon who ruined his life. This is coming from Viz LLC. If you've ever watched really any anime, you're probably familiar with Viz and their logo because they do a lot of that kind of Japanese media. There's also Avatar, The Last Airbender, and Legend of Korra. It is going to be two series, one, sorry, two shows. Oh, God. Two stories, one from each show. <laughs> there we go. I got it out. Uh, one from The Last Airbender and one from Legend of Korra. They are all ages stories. Fun Girl, Tales of a Grown-Up Nothing comes from Silver Sprocket and is written and drawn by Elizabeth Pitch, or Pike, possibly. It says, experience the passion and the pleasure of the fun girl. Delight in her exploits, demolishing the patriarchy while almost burning down the house masturbating, showing teenagers skateboard kicks, tricks, and scheming at a job at the funeral home. And a scheming job at the funeral home. And a llama? Chaos reigns supreme. What could possibly go wrong? Let's find out. It is, of course, rated mature, if you didn't gather that from the description. Silver Sprocket is a publisher that I have read many things from, and absolutely everything that I've read from them is phenomenal. Um, so if you are a um, adult feminist who, you know, is somewhat progressive and can, like, handle reality, um, check out this, because Fun Girl Tales of, a Gro Tales of a Grown Up Nothing sounds like my kind of shit. Marvel, Silver, Spider-Man, and I see, I think it's because Silver is the level. I don't know why they're putting it in the title, but it's just Spider-Man Venom is what it's called. It's by Al Ewing and Rom V. They're going to be doing the upcoming Venom series, so if you're interested in that, check that out. It might be a good kickoff point for that series. Life is Strange is a one-shot from Titan Comics. Life is Strange being the video game, Titan Comics being the publisher who tends to make video game-based comics. Um, I really enjoy their Horizon Zero Dawn, which is now in its second series, so this should be a really fun one. Another comic coming out free comic book day is called On Tyranny. What it says about this one is, a comic market exclusive excerpt from the upcoming graphic edition of historian Timothy Snyder's best-selling book of lessons for surviving and resisting America's arc toward authoritarianism. Featuring the visual storytelling talents of renowned illustrator Nora Krug. Once again, that sounds like my kind of shit. Rent a Really Shy Girlfriend from Kodansha Comics is rated for teens. <laughs> it is an official manga spin-off of Rent a Girlfriend, which is apparently a rom-com turned anime hit. Features fan favorite Sumi, the shy girl longing to come out of her shell. Written and illustrated by the original creator Reggie Miyajima. Catch up, it says catch up on the manga before Rent-A-Girl, Rent-A-Girl from Returns for a Second anime season coming soon. I haven't seen the first season, but maybe I'll check it out. School for Extraterrestrial Girls is coming from the publisher Paper Cuts. Located on a hidden island in the Arctic North, the new campus has a mysteriously warmer summer climate. 
has a mysteriously warm summer climate, a beautiful lake, and a dozen sinister mysteries, not to mention strange boys. Romance, magic, self-discovery, and near-death experiences are all part of a regular school day at the Displaced School for Extraterrestrial Girls. I mean, come on, that sounds like just so much fun. Like, if you if you don't think that sounds fun, I'm sorry, but you're lying to yourself. Uh, towards the end of the list here, we got three more. Star Wars, The High Republic, Balance, and Guardian's Wills. As far as I can tell here, this is two stories. One is called Balance and one is called Guardian's Wills. The Balance story takes place in the High Republic era and the Guardian's Wills story takes place just before the events of Rogue One with the characters, I'm sorry, I don't remember how to say their names, Baze and Shurit. I haven't, it's been a while since I've seen Rogue One. I like that movie, but I don't remember how to say their names. But it's the... Um, I'm one with the force, the force is one with me, whatever the thing is that he says. I'm one with the force, the force is with me. I think that's what it is. Um, it's him and then it's the guy with the big gun. You, if you've seen Rogue One, you know who I'm talking about. <laughs> so it's about them. I think that's awesome. Also, both these stories are supposed to have anime style art. So, well, I guess it'd be manga style art because it's paper. But yeah, I awesome. Count me in. Stray Dogs is a prequel story to the series Stray Dogs. It has been coming out uh, and it has an expanded story from the series, apparently. Um, the reason that I'm putting this on here is because it was a really big hit series. Really big hit series. Uh, the first issue, I think, is going for over $30 right now, um, as opposed to like the five that it normally does. So this one will likely become, this free comic will likely become worth a fair amount of money in the future. Finally, the last one I have here is We Live Last Days. It is telling the story of how the world of Last Days, or sorry, the world of We Live became uninhabitable, a prequel to that main series. While I do not read We Live, it's one of those ones that just kind of slipped under my time and my radar. I just couldn't, I just got behind and I really wanted to, I still do want to read it. Maybe I'll read it on Collected. Um, but since it did sound so interesting, children being taken off planet um, to start a new world, basically. And this is the prequel to that. I think it seems like it's going to be pretty cool. Alrighty, folks, let's get started with these several TV shows that we have to talk about. Uh, starting off with What If Episode 1. I don't know where that came from. What If Episode 1. It's titled, What If Captain Carter Were the First Avenger? The main thing that I took away from this was how goddamn satisfying it was to see Peggy Carter get hers. Oh, I loved it. Um... There's a couple of things that are parallels that happen throughout the the episode, but but the main change is that kicks off the whole uh, different multiverse universe thing that we're going here is that Carter and the government boyos who were there to watch Steve get turned into the first Avenger, or rather just a super soldier at that point, um, they ended up staying by the transformation chamber instead of going up into the viewing booth up there. Um, so when the guy attacked, instead of um, bombing the, the booth or whatever he was trying to do, he ends up actually wounding Steve um, and a lot of the governmental boys there. So uh, Peggy ends up being the only one available to hop into the super soldier machine um, because Steve is wounded and they have to do it now or never. She hops in and out comes Buff Peggy. Buff Peggy can get it. 
oh my god, like, buff, like, whoo, <laughs> she's nice. <laughs> Um, she basically, uh, for the first part of the episode, she spent much of her time as, you know, regular Peggy being told by the men in the room that she is not verbatim, but basically saying she's not helpful or should be grateful to be even allowed into their meetings, which was closer to verbatim, um, and how she's so outmatched and blah, blah, blah. And oh, how the tables have turned. She has become the tallest, the strongest, the most formidable person in the room, in any room. Um, she is kind of kicked out of the army, um, in a way, because... That's just, like, I, well, of course they do. Um, so Howard Stark ends up being the one to kind of make her the suit for um, for her to wear and as well as the stuff received to wear. When she first sees her suit, she jokes that it's a little bit too inconspicuous. And then he gives her the shield. He's like, oh, you're going to hate this then. And gives her the shield. And all of her stuff is themed with England's flag, not America. So makes sense for her um and howard having been an american making this for her very conscientious in my opinion that he went as far as to design it for her homeland and not for the country she'd be technically fighting in which was i believe the u.s i guess she would i guess i guess steve went to the front so she probably went to the front too um steve in this since he is not captain america he goes off with her and howard and uh howard makes him a uh i believe they called it hydra stomper it's basically war machine suit <laughs> or mark one iron man something between the two um so he flies around and she peggy's around it's awesome so they become captain mccarter and war machine more or less she rides on him as he flies not like that you pervert um she like rides him like a surfboard kind of through the air it's really neat um there were some really amazing sequences of them fighting in the war efforts we get bucky here he's still steve's friend and they ended up rescuing him and the howling commandos who again all become a team just like with steve as captain america I thought it would be really, really wild, and honestly, I was kind of disappointed they didn't do this. Uh, if Steve died, you know, died, quote-unquote, and got turned into the Winter Soldier the way that Bucky, Steve's sidekick, died and got turned into the Winter Soldier, but they didn't do that. Oh well. Leaves room for the future if they decide to continue her story. Um... There is lots of talk, of course, of her and Steve being owed dances. It's it's really cute because she's the very large, brawlic woman, and he is this little string bean of a dude. Um, and so it's it's like it's it's the reverse of the tropes, you know. It's just so cute. <laughs> uh, and when everything comes down to it, we have Red Skull using the Tesseract to open a portal to another dimension, as he does. But this time, a massive tentacle creature starts coming through to our world. Potentially Shuma Gorath. Um, it did have a bit of a different design than Shuma Gorath in the comics. Shuma Gorath is like a Doctor Strange monster. Um, so that would make sense as to potentially what that creature was here. Uh, it was not named. He called it the Champion of Hydra, so potentially that could technically be it. Clearly Hydra had no idea what they were dealing with because it immediately smushes Red Skull to death, which was honestly really funny. I don't give a shit about Hydra. It is not your monster. <laughs> it is a strong, independent monster. 
and so, of course, Peggy ends up having to save the day by forcefully pushing it back through the portal it came from to get rid of it, and the portal closes behind her. She pops up out of the cube, where we saw Loki do the same in Avengers. However, she pops out with a bunch of sliced-up tentacles and learns that it has been 70 years since the war ended. At this point, we can assume that this Peggy is going to be joining the Avengers in Steve's place as the first Avenger. Parallels. Uh, I made a little list here. Peggy is parallels from this episode and the various canon MCU projects. Uh, Peggy and the punching bags. Bags, really. Uh, we have a famous scene from Avengers where Steve punches the punching bags and it punches the punching bag off the puncher. Um, we have some discussion of USO tours being the tours that Captain America was sent on in the first Avenger. Uh, we have lots of Peggy stomping on things to flip them up to her level, which is something that Steve is very well known for doing as Captain America. There was, as I said, lots of talk of them owing each other a dance. Bucky made a comment about almost having his arm ripped off. Of course, the Howling Commando sequences with Peggy leading the team was very reminiscent of the first Avenger. Uh, and then there was a scene with Peggy and a very, very oversized Hydra henchman where she drops the shield to fight him in a very similar way to the way that Steve did with Bartrock in uh, The Winter Soldier. And then, of course, ending with her sacrificing herself and returning 70 years later. Really awesome episode. I I can see where this could potentially be um, something that continues because what if has apparently confirmed that there's going to be at least one Peggy Carter installment in every season of What If going forward. So that means that in the next season, we could either see... I imagine it wouldn't be a completely different Peggy Carter story. I imagine the next one that we see is going to be The Avengers with Peggy Carter as their leader instead of Captain America. Um, and that's something really cool that I would just, I would super dig to see that. Um, I think that that was definitely why they left themselves that room is to fill out the story as the show continues through other seasons. For the characters, we have Jeffrey Wright, who you may know from Westworld, a couple other things. He plays the show's narrator, Uwatu the Watcher. The Watchers have to observe and basically document everything that happens in the universe, but they can't step in and can't say anything. If you ever see one of the Watchers and you're in the, you know, if you're a comic character and the Watcher wants to appear in front of you, basically you know that something big's going down because they're there to witness it. So we also have Haley Atwell back as Peggy Carter, Sebastian Stan back as Bucky Barnes, Dominic Cooper as Howard Stark, uh, Dum Dum Duggan was played by the same guy, Neil McDonough, although I have to say he sounded really not like he did in the movie, uh, The First Avenger, but it's okay, he doesn't have to. We have Toby Jones returning as Arnim Zola, Samuel L. Jackson returns as Nick Fury, and Stanley Tucci as Erskine, Dr. Erskine. Um, other MCU actors uh, joining this episode was Jeremy Renner as Hawkeye, and Ross Marquand as the Red Skull, who was the Red Skull from uh, Infinity War and Endgame. Uh, then we have Bradley, was kind of a fun fact. Bradley Whitford was the arrogant Colonel John Flynn. Um, however, he was also that character in the 2013 
Agent Carter Marvel one-shot that came before her Agent Carter show. So that's kind of cool. They went all the way back, oh gosh, eight years ago and picked him up to be able to use him again for the same character in a different format. Um, there was no Chris Evans as Captain America, or as Steve Rogers, obviously. Uh, he was voiced by a dude named Josh Keaton. Some people really didn't like the animation style of this, and I totally get it. It's very much like video game cut sequences, but by the end of the episode, honestly, I found it pretty easy to get used to. Uh, other than that, as far as I've seen, the only other critiques I've really heard are coming from people who seem to be unfamiliar with the what-if format from the comics and weren't expecting so much stuff that we've already seen or to have it in such a narrative format. And that's just how what if stories work. They are switched up retellings of the stories we already know. So they just walk us through the changes to show us the different outcome by the end. Um, and that's basically what we're going to expect through the rest of this. It's going to be fairly similar um, in familiarity feelings as this episode was. As for Peggy Carter as Captain America, um, she has not appeared in a Captain America What If comic as Captain Carter. However, uh, this particular Peggy was kind of... Um, a, she was originally sort of an addition to the uh, Marvel Puzzle Quest game in 2016. First time she appeared on a comic was from Saladin Ahmed's Exiles number 3 in 2018, where she was Captain America... Um, in a reality where lots of displaced characters ended up fighting Red Skull. And I believe she ended up dying in the end, actually, in that series. Um, there's some rumors that Carter is actually going to show up in Multiverse of Madness next year as well. That's Doctor Strange 2. It would make a lot of sense for that to happen. Um, however, if that were to happen, it opens up the question of... Are these what-if events going to be relevant to the rest of the MCU? And if Agent Carter, excuse me, if Captain Carter shows up in Multiverse of Madness as the Captain Carter we just saw in this what-if episode, I think that leaves a lot of room for the other what-if episodes to be dragged into the MCU and other places as well, and to be possibly a lot more relevant to canon MCU projects going forward than we really expected. Okie dokie, Arachoki, we are going to go on to the very extensive discussion of Titans. Oh, uh, first drop? Season 3 drop? We'll say that, because it was three episodes, so I can't say first episode. It's the first episodes. Whatever, it doesn't matter. This premiered yesterday, Thursday the 12th, on HBO Max. This is an HBO Max original, meaning that every Thursday that they're going to be having an episode, it will be up there at, like, you know, midnight Thursday um, so there's no, like, waiting for 6pm for the show to air on TV before it shows up on HBO Max. It will be there in the morning, every Thursday, until it's done premiering. Um, I, first of all, am extremely happy with this. I am super duper pumped for the next episodes. Just so happens episode four is titled Blackfire. We haven't seen her yet, obviously. Um, I am so excited! I have such a crush on Starfire in the show. Um, just to preface any kind of grumbling that may happen to listeners, from listeners. If you've watched the show, you will understand that Corey, um, 
when she powers up, she basically looks like comic Starfire. She has orange skin. She has like flaming glowing hair. Um, and she does her power shit. So please stop bitching about her being a black woman and please stop saying she looks bad because she's hot as fuck. Um, and if you say otherwise, I'm sorry, you're, you have a lot of ingrained racism to deal with. <laughs> That's just the truth. If you think she's ugly, that is, you are wrong, sir. And you have, you have some, some deeply ingrained racism that you need to work out. <laughs> uh, anyway, <laughs> so the first episode starts off, um, exactly where I wanted it to, because if you recall, the second season finished off with Jason Todd being Jason Todd. And we have been hearing all the stuff that how he's going to be Red Hood in this season. Well, excuse me, he's alive. How is that going to happen? Well, shit, Anna, we're going to tell you right in the beginning of the episode. Yes. It's because he he does the thing. So a death of the family, a death in the family is the story where Jason Todd gets killed by the Joker in the comics. Very famous, very expensive if you find the, the actual issues. Um... These were just standard Batman issues. I know for a lot of things like Hush, um, that's just one example, Death in the Family being another example, um, for new readers, it can be a little bit confusing. These are not series that were originally released called Hush or called A Death in the Family. These were all just regular canon Batman issues, and Hush was just the title of that arc. And so they, um, they just call they just kind of pull that arc out of the rest of the Batman and they sell it by itself because it is a really good story, self-contained. Uh, same thing goes with Death in the Family. There was no originally published, you know, Death in the Family thing. It was always this, the Batman issues. They were later on reprinted as a collected Death in the Family title, just like Hush was or has been for many years. But it, it's all just straight Batman stuff. But this is the, 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 the names. Ooh, my light fell over. The names of the story arcs. In this season, the Titans are in San Francisco. However, Jason Todd is still in Gotham when we first see him in the beginning. He basically does the thing that happens in Death in the Family. He is... He goes to fight the Joker. He figures out what the Joker is. He's at the, the old fairgrounds. Uh, at the pier, which is exactly where it is in Death in the Family, and he goes and he gets his head beat in by the Joker at the pier, which is exactly what happens in the comic. Um, if I'm not mistaken, in the comic what actually happens is Joker beats his head in, doesn't quite kill him, and then blows the pier up so that Batman has to go through the wreckage to find dead Jason Todd. Um, pretty rough shit. Uh, in the comic. And that's something I highly recommend that if you're a fan trying to get into uh, Cape comics, definitely read Death in the Family. Read Hush first, though. You will not regret. Ah! Death in the Family, Under the Red Hood, then Hush. I think that's the best way to do it. We're getting too off track here. So uh, Jason gets killed. Everybody finds out that Jason's been killed. It's very sad. Okay. Um... I like to think this a note that I had through this. There's this jewel. Um, there is this crystal called Moldavite. Um, it is a high vibration crystal. It is extremely, extremely expensive because there's only so much of it in existence. This is not something. I mean, obviously, there's only so much of most things in existence. But um, Moldavite is created by, if I'm not mistaken, asteroids like 15 million years ago hitting Earth. And the 
shards of molten glass and shit that came out of them when they collided with Earth is Moldavite. Mostly they come out of the Czech Republic, which is kind of cool because that's where my people came from too. Um, but there's only so much of it on Earth because of how it was made and how long ago it was made. So that's what, part of why Moldavite is so expensive. But something that I noticed while watching Titans is uh, Corey, they call her Corey Anders, right? Uh, Corey, she's got these beautiful green jewels on her jewelry. They are literally the exact same color of Moldavite. So my headcanon is that Corey is balling the fuck out with a shit ton of Moldavite on her on her outfit. Like a thumbnail size piece of Moldavite is like a hundred dollars. I'm not even joking. Um, this shit is nuts how expensive it is. But yeah, I just headcanon Corey has Moldavite all the fuck over her outfit because she's that much of a baller. Um, we get some insight into Gotham. Gotham has a curfew. Shit seems to be really worse than it's ever been there. And we meet Tim Drake. This was very exciting. We're going to talk about Tim Drake later on in the episode when we get to his recent coming out sort of not really issue. Um, and while that's relevant, but this was really awesome for a lot of reasons. This was the only scene that we have seen Tim Drake in for these first few episodes. So this is definitely a tease of... He is here, we want you to see him, but we're not going to bring him into being a relevant character until we need him later on down the line. We don't know when that's going to be yet, but I am so pumped to see him in whatever amount of action we're going to see him in. Tim Drake in the comics, of course, is just a, you know, he's a white kid. He is the third Robin, um, and he, gosh, I think he kind of died, not really, then came back. It's been a long, it's been a long road for Tim Drake, but... Uh, here in in Titans, he is brown. He 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 is, his mom is Chinese and his dad's a black man. I love that. You know how often? Um, God, I should say how rarely uh, the, the media puts a uh, um, interracial couple in you know TV or movies or something. And it's and there's no white people involved. That is so rare. I love that. It's it's so unreal to assume that every interracial couple has one white person involved. That's stupid. Just because I you know just because they're interracial doesn't mean that a white person has to be one of them. That's not the definition of interracial. So this was really nice. I, I I'm sure it sounds like I'm just harping on that for absolutely no reason, but that's a bit of representation that similar to how you get a lot of black women who are given. Uh, kind of Western culture hair and very light colored eyes to kind of make them more appealing to uh, a white audience. That's the same thing they always, they kind of tend to for interracial couples, have one of the members be a white person to make that couple more appealing to a white audience. So I, I love seeing that they put in the extra effort to not do that, to not just fall into that same trap of it's easier, it's going to be more appealing to the audience that traditionally people want. They didn't do that, and that is great. So he delivers noodles, Tim. He delivers noodles from his parents' uh, noodle house in Gotham. Uh, it's a 24-hour noodle house. His older cousin seems to live with him, and he is a really big Batman fan. Um, we find out that he is pretty sad when he finds out that Robin has been killed. Um, but that's really all we get of him in this episode. So he, he's definitely going to get brought in somewhere later on in the season to have a bigger role. When we see Barbara Gordon for the first time in this, I I think I cheered? I don't know, I said something, but I was really excited because um, we have not met a commissioner. 
but <laughs> you have Dick showing up to a crime scene and he says, where is the commissioner? And they say over there and he looks, it's fucking Barbara Gordon. It's not her dad. It's Babs. Oh, I, I kind of knew that was going to happen, but I had forgotten it. So that was just such a satisfying moment. And she's in her wheelchair. Barbara Gordon was cast as a woman who actually only has one leg because, oh my God. Oh, where do I even start with this? So, so the killing joke, she, <laughs> she was like shot by the Joker and paralyzed and kidnapped and all the stuff. It was, it's a really fucked up story to be honest, but, um, they wanted to have that Barbara who's been through that in this show. And so they went ahead and they cast an actress who has one fucking, like, that is so spot on. Like, gone are the days of, um, Forrest Gump's being played by neurotypical actors. Those days are over. And good fucking riddance. Um, I have a lot of things to say about this actress as Barbara Gordon. Namely, I could not be happier. Honestly, honest to God, I could not be happier with how she did Barbara Gordon. Just, oh, kudos. So much kudos. And there's a lot that goes into it. Um, her disability is not a disability to her. Um, and, and obviously a lot of that has to do with the fact that this is a woman who lives with this condition herself with only having one leg. Um, so when she's going around in her wheelchair... That's also something I wanted to note is it's un it's not clear if she's paralyzed or if she just has the one leg. I assume she must be paralyzed because she could get a, you know, fake leg and or, or crutches or something. Uh, but she doesn't. So I assume she must be paralyzed. But the way she moves around in the wheelchair through the show is so incredibly natural and confident and it's not like she's in a wheelchair. She moves around like a normal person. All of these are real things. This is all how people in wheelchairs really are. They're normal people. You don't have to have a big, difficult relationship with somebody just because they're in a wheelchair. And they don't make that... They don't necessarily make that the cornerstone of her character. It's a, fact, it's a factor in who she is, certainly. But it's not... It's not her the main thing that you would want to describe her when you talk about her. The, the fact that she only has one leg and she's in a wheelchair is not who she is. Um, she's so much more than that. And it's so delightful to see that character portrayed in this way on screen. I just, I, I, again, I cannot have been made more happy with how they have portrayed Barbara Gordon in this. Um, hopefully I will not end up sticking my foot down my throat if they kill her off or something, because that would suck. Um, but yeah, I just completely thrilled. Um, but anyway, <laughs> so more Barbara Gordon is commissioner. Uh, like I said, her leg was, I'm very curious to find out if she, the leg was taken from the hospital as uh, a side effect of the paralyzation or if the Joker cut her leg off. I really want to know. Did the Joker cut her leg off while he had kidnapped her? Because that's a whole other level of creepy. Uh, but he did shoot her. She did mention that. Um, and she does have history as Batgirl. She did say that she hung up the cape a long time ago. And then later on, we find out that her dad actually died of a heart attack after Mr. Dr. Freeze attacked him and froze him in a block of ice. He was rescued, but then still dies of a heart attack afterwards. So Barbara has... A lot of feelings about Dick and the things that he and the other capes do. 
We do get some tidbits through these episodes that Dick and Babs were an item when he was Robin and she was Batgirl and Gordon was the commissioner. He seems to almost yearn for those times, but she really seems to almost regret them. Not as in she regrets having lost her leg, but more like she regrets having spent that time allowing these men, these heroes, to be the way they are, to do what they do, the toxicity of it, the the backwardsness of it almost, uh, and being that way with them, kind of enabling them. She seems to regret that part of her involvement with them. Uh, Dick does take her to the mansion to try and help Bruce through his trauma after losing Jason, but Bruce is not a regular guy and it goes really sour because Bruce mentions how he doesn't... Ag- well, I mean, he doesn't really say this, but he basically alludes to how he does not approve of how little Babs invol- involves him as Batman uh, with all of, of her job as commissioner. Um, he calls the situation in Gotham a war that he and her father handled a lot better. And that sets Barbara off because Bruce... He is just as guilty of that war as all of his villains are. He he enables that war to happen as much as anybody else. So the thing about Jason, I forgot to mention earlier, um, Dick finds out that Jason has been shooting up with something. Not shoot, he's been taking something in an inhaler. It's a weird chemi- chemical. Uh, Dick finds out Jason was experimenting with some weird chemistry BS that... Batman didn't even know about, but when Dick analyzes this material, it has absolutely no matches, not a clue what it is, uh, which I have some theories of, which we'll get to at the end of all this. Um, So Dick returns to the Batcave later on and finds the names of teenagers on a screen that Bruce has been looking at. Why? He's already finding a replacement for Jason. So Dick is obviously furious. The thing though about this scene, there were four names on the screen. I only caught three of them. Carrie Kelly, Stephanie Brown, Duke Thomas. Ah! Oh my god. Um, Carrie Kelly being the Frank Miller creation for the Dark Knight universe. She is the the first uh, female Robin. Stephanie Brown is Batgirl. At one point, she was actually Robin as well. She has been in a relationship with Tim Drake. She um, kind of co-Batgirls with Cassandra Kane. Um, Duke Thomas, he was, I don't think he was ever Batman at any point, but he was um, the Signal most recently. Kind of a Bat family member unofficially. I don't know why they don't bring him in more, a little bit more, but all three characters who have been sidekicks to Batman in some way, in some universe, those are the kinds of Easter eggs I like. Whether or not they become into the series as characters, uh, if I had to choose, Carrie Kelly would be my choice, but if they don't, it's fine. This was just a really fun Easter egg that I'm just going to spend the next, like, six months thinking about what it could mean. (laughs) Um, So the episode ends in a very interesting way. Uh, After this altercation with Jason and, or excuse me, with Dick and Bruce, uh, with the kids' names on the screen that that Dick discovers Bruce is already looking to get another Robin, basically he tells Bruce that you're addicted to having sidekicks, and Bruce even admits himself to Dick that he can't do this alone, so Dick tells him, then just stop. So, the first episode ends, it's nighttime, and Bruce wakes up Dick in his bedroom with a bloody crowbar dropping onto the floor, and reports that the Joker laughed like he won as Bruce caved his head in. Of course he laughed like he won. He did win. 
He he broke the bat. He won. Of course he's gonna laugh. So Bruce killed Doker, leaves the mantle to Dick, and disappears. He actually tells him, be a better Batman than I was. And that's the end of the episode. Oh. I lost it. That they... <laughs> Batman in the comics has never killed the Joker. This is wild! They took this shit in a place that we all... Like, he obviously... He should kill the Joker, though. The Joker is an agent of chaos. There's nothing worth keeping him alive. But they still keep him alive, and he refuses to kill him. And here he kills him! He broke the bat! Oh my god, this was so cool. We're probably not going to see any more Batman in this series. Um, my theory about hopefully seeing Damien become the next Robin kind of just got washed out the window with that. But honestly, it's kind of worth it for this awesomeness of Batman killing the Joker and just, like, walking off. He beat his head in with a crowbar, just like he did the Jason. Ah, oh, ah, oh, righteous! I just got super stoked about this. I'm like, ah, oh, so sweaty. Because <laughs> uh, then we have episode two. So this isn't even... We got two more episodes to talk about here, okay? <laughs> so episode two, um, we we meet... It's, it's called Red Hood. So first episode was Barbara Gordon... I completely fell in love with her portrayal. Uh, episode two is called Red Hood. We meet Jason as the Red Hood. It is no mystery to people who have really any clue of what's going on that Jason was under the Red Hood. Um, that would be the series if you want to read that story. It's called Under the Red Hood. <laughs> um, and he shows up here in this episode exactly how he does in the comic in Under the Red Hood by throwing a bag of heads onto the table of the various crime lords of Gotham, telling them that he can protect them if they pay him and do what he says, and the heads are all from their seconds in command. It's exactly what happened in the comic. They did it just like that in the show, and it worked. It was perfect. We had a, um, Dick gets called into the, the police department in Gotham because some weird shit's going on. There was a really funny interaction. I, I thought it was funny. Um, Barbara says to Dick, after he explains that Bruce told him to take up the mantle of the bat, uh, she tells him, you know how crazy it is stepping into your father's shoes? And he looks at her and he goes, yeah, Commissioner Gordon. <laughs> Oh, burn. I love their relationship. I don't think that there's going to be any romance between them, but that brother-sister, but at the same time former lover relationship is spot on with the way that these two portray their characters, and I'm so happy with it. Dick was called to the police station because a lady had bombed an ATM uh, publicly, and when they arrested her, uh, she wanted. She has a note that says, uh, I want to speak with Nightwing. So that's why they called him here. Uh, once he's here in the room with her in his little Nightwing outfit, she pulls up her sleeve and there's a phone number carved into her arm. Really brutal. Um, Barbara calls it from behind the, the viewing screen thing and the woman immediately starts like frothing, like she's diseased and her arm starts like pumping with this weird like almost black looking stuff in her veins and she's like frothing and going crazy then she whips her hands up and snaps her own neck what <laughs> of all the things that i thought was going to happen in that scene that was definitely not one of them um but that was really amazingly well done scene of let's creep the fuck out of the viewer and make them very curious as to what just happened at the same time. You got that one right on. 
Um, so then at this point, Dick finds out that they are actually using the Scarecrow to track some of these weird cases because he is the way that he is. Um, absolutely brilliant casting here, if I do say so. Um, this was the guy who, oh gosh, he was in Mad Men. I don't remember his name. I don't have it in front of me. I'm sorry. Um, but he's just like the seedy little greasy dude. And they just did a perfect job of casting him here as the Scarecrow. Um, another funny thing is he smokes a lot of pot in exchange for information because he says it slows his brain down and helps him think, which I think is very interesting because that's a lot of what the medical uses for that are. So I think it's kind of cool that they brought that in for that purpose of this being useful for this actual psychopath to be not psychotic. <laughs> Um, when Hank and Don show up in Gotham, um, Corey is the one to say, there has been a death in the family. Ba-dum-bum. Name the story of Jason being killed. Okay, we checked that box. Nice. <laughs> Hank and Don, speaking of Hank and Don, they are not a couple anymore. Um, Hank is a, is a bike cop in Washington, D.C., and Don is still Dove. Um, but they do go to Gotham after Jason's death because the Titans need their support. Um, there is a scene also in the second episode of the Titans in Gotham, all of them trying to get ahead of Red Hood for this bank robbery, but they basically fall directly into his trap and end up losing, I don't know how many millions of dollars, but she said like 40 million or something like that from the bank. Uh, which makes them really, really on Barbara's bad side because she trusted them with this operation and they literally fell right into the trap of Red Hood. We get a lot more of Hank and Dawn in the third episode, which is where we're going to go talk about next. So Hank is uh, really upset about the, the Jason situation. But of course, he is the one that Jason chooses to pick out of the pack and to get alone. He gets a call, Hank gets a call from Jason and decides to, to actually do what he says and to go meet with him because Jason is sobbing and scared and terrified on the other end. He says he doesn't know what's going on. So he he got him. Jason got him, got Hank. He, uh, he found his bleeding heart and he pulled those strings. <laughs> So Hank follows all of the weird little rules that Jason starts setting up. Well, you got to do this now. Now you got to do this. And they just get more and more sketchy as they go, including destroying his phone, using this new phone, going to a uh, closed down gym, and then getting naked and swimming across the pool at the gym. I mean... <laughs> Obviously, this was a trick because he gets to the other side of the pool, gets immediately knocked out by Red Hood to absolutely no one's surprise. <laughs> Hank, you, I'm, I'm sorry, Hank, you did this to yourself. So he wakes up, or actually, he he turns back up at the Batcave later on, and it's revealed that he has this extremely high tech Wayne Tech bomb attached to his chest with these, like, you know, porcupine quills how they have barbs in them so you can't pull them out properly. That's basically what this thing was attached to his chest with. And if the barbs got pulled, it would go off. So, and if you tamper with it, it goes off. It's tied to heartbeats. So um, they figure out that he basically has about four hours for them to make the trigger that will turn the bomb off, which is the job that they give Superboy, Connor Kent, because he can do this stuff at high speed. Um, 
Jason gives them another option. He says that if you want to save Hank, what you're going to have to do is steal a bunch of these gold bars from this armored truck and bring them. Dick obviously tells the team we're not going to do that because that's just going to make the Titans look like villains, which is exactly what Jason is trying to do right now. So while Connor is getting closer and closer and closer to making the correct switches for the, the off button for the bomb, Dove can't wait. This is, she and Hank may have broken up, but they're still wildly in love with each other. Uh, she goes along with Jason's plan and steals the gold bars. When she's done, Jason tells Dove that the way to get, um, the way to get Hank saved is to shoot him because he's holding a dead man switch that will turn the bomb off once he dies, right? Because his hand will stop gripping it. That's what a dead man switch is. Um, and so she's going to shoot him and Dick shows up and tries to convince her that it's a trick tell her that Connor's going to finish in time. I know we only have a minute or two left. Connor, he'll get it. He'll get it. He's, he's good at this. And so it gets to be about 20 heartbeats left. Um, I think it actually got down to about 10 heartbeats left. And Dove, she just, she can't handle it anymore. She panics and she shoots Jason, but nothing happens. It turns out the gun Jason gave her was the detonator for the bomb. So when she pulls the trigger, the countdown jumps to zero. Connor had finished the fixer, the off switch, and was super speeding his way into the room when the bomb goes off and Hank is blown up. Connor probably blames himself for a while, thinking that he was too slow, but he wasn't. He had all the time that he needed. It was Dawn. Dawn pulled the trigger and killed him herself. She can't even grasp reality of this for a moment. She she is frazzled. She's confused. She asks uh, Dick what happened, basically just until she ends up collapsing into his arms, sobbing with just the overwhelming disbelief. Uh, and the episode ends like that. I did not think they would actually kill Hank. Um, I'm not like crushed by it, I don't think, because I think this was a good decision. Um, we have now established that Jason is not shitting around with these guys and he is willing to do literally anything to get what he wants, whatever that may be. Um, he is ready to kill every single one of them properly dead if he has to. And that is a terrifying concept and that is going to set the status quo probably for the rest of the season of what they have to deal with when it comes to Jason. Um, it still also isn't known how Jason survived. There's two ways that this could have gone as far as I see it. One is that he set this up himself already. He was experimenting with that weird chemical shit in the inhaler. Kind of seems like a cross between Jason Todd and Speedy from the Green Arrow comics as a character, the sh character in the show because he does seem to have these drug issues or synthetic drug issues, whatever it is that he's making. So my question here is the two ways that it could go. Is it Jason knew this was going to happen, knew he might die and got people to set it up to steal his body back because we did learn in this episode that they did switch out his body in the morgue and that's how he was not buried. So was it, that he knew this chemical that he was making was going to bring him back to life and he had somebody set that up or did somebody else <coughs> excuse me <coughs> excuse me did somebody else's goons like save him knowing that 
he's got the, uh, whatever. I assume him coming back to life has to do with that synthetic drug he was taking. So did somebody find out about that drug and save him? Or did he have that set up on his own plan already? Really not sure. They, <clears throat> they did mention Ra's al Ghul in this, um, but they seem to mention him in the way that was crossing him off the list of possibilities. I would be out of this world thrilled if it was Talia, because it was Talia in the comics, and Talia is the mother of Damien, Bruce's son. So that would also be a perfect way to bring Damien into this TV show as well. We still have Tim, though. Remember Tim Drake? We still know that he's around, and we haven't even met Blackfire yet. There is a lot to be covered in this season. I am so thrilled. These first three episodes, I'm just like bonkers crazy about. Um, I'm sure they had lame moments that I'm ignoring right now because I'm having fun talking about how much fun it was to watch. Um, I just, I dig it. I really dig it. The season, I think, is even better than the first two. Um, and I think that they are on a really, really nice road to whatever's going to happen in the future of this show. I'm super pumped. The last thing that I want to say about Titans is that whoever is in charge of the cinematography or perhaps direction of photography for the season, they need a raise. There are some really excellent shots. Um, the the shots that were used through the whole thing with Hank, really, really great choices. Um, this, not really symbolism, but just the, the way that they kind of aimed the camera on things. It was just very well done. Kudos to whoever it is that manages all of that for Titans. And that leaves us with Reservation Dogs. The first two episodes are up on Hulu. I believe it premieres on FX. The reason that I am interested in this primarily uh, from the beginning was because it is produced by Taika Waititi, who I'm sure you all are familiar with by this time as the director of Thor Ragnarok and the upcoming Love and Thunder, the creator of something or what we do in the shadows. Um which is another one that I absolutely love. Uh, I believe it is a TV show as well as a movie, so definitely check those out um, if you're into, like, supernatural comedy. Um, Taika Waititi is a is a indigenous Kiwi. Uh, he is an indigenous New Zealander. Oh, uh, gosh. I believe there is a name, and I am blanking really badly on that, and I apologize. Um, but Reservation Dogs does take place in the U.S. It it, it surround it bleh, it involves kids in an indigenous reservation in I want to say Oklahoma or something like that who are trying to get to California in order to get out of the res out of the situation that they're in um you know deadbeat dads not a lot of money lots of thefts it's 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 a great lie in America that the Indian reservations were created to create a sense of equality. <laughs> Such a lie. The, uh, I, I took a class in college, um, Power and Culture in American Indian History is what it was called, and talked a lot about this kind of thing, watched a lot of um, documentaries about modern life on reservations. Um, to add some of my own experience, possibly to clarify, possibly it might help a little. Um, my grandparents had 10 children and adopted an 11th, a Native American boy named Tom. Um, he 
I never got a chance to meet him that I remember. He was killed uh, when I was a baby. Um, but something that I was always told that once he had, he had several of my cousins, um, obviously before he died, uh, they're much older than me. And he had always told his siblings, adopted siblings as though they were, that he never wanted his children to grow up on a reservation because he knew what happened there. Um, and that's, I mean, this, it's not, it's not great stuff. So, um, so there's it's, it's, it, the show follows these kids on the reservation in Oklahoma or whatever this they are. It's got the community. It's you know the one kid's dad is an out of work indigenous rapper, and you get the they all go and they steal a chip truck and they go and they drive it past the cop and it's got the the back thing is hanging out. They couldn't figure out to put the the steps or whatever the the. Um, the thing that you walk up into the truck, the back of the truck on, whatever that's called, the ramp. They couldn't figure out how to put that in. So they go driving past the cop with the ramp sliding along the ground, the back of the truck half open. And he doesn't even notice. He's he's a funny, uh, he's a funny character. He's kind of like the laid back, you know, kind of half-assed, I'm authoritative, but only to a point kind of cop, indigenous cop. Really, really lovely group of characters. Um, a lot of tropes that, <laughs> are pretty funny. Um, a lot of the culture that I I very much appreciate seeing played out in this way by these people. Um, there was something about um, I don't know. It's 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 good. I I'm I'm doing a really good bad. I'm doing a terrible job here with talking about it, but it's hilarious. It has a lot of meaning to it. Um, like one of the things that happens is they, they stole a truck from the, the chip truck from the, the delivery guy, right? Well, then they, later on, they find out that he lost his job. His wife divorced him because he lost the job. He's probably going to end up homeless because the wife divorced him because he lost his job. Like, and they end up feeling really bad and they try to, they had sold the truck to the meth heads for some cash and they try to take it back from the meth heads and the meth heads are going to give it to them, but the truck is like worthless now. Oh my God. It's very good. Uh, not for kids. Holy hell, not for kids. But it is very well done, and I, I'm, I'm a really big fan of it. Um, <laughs> it's it's kind of spotlighting this sector of our country that is often washed over, um, and so it's it's educational in that sense, um, and it adds stories to your repertoire. You know, it adds. It adds culture and a knowledge of these stories to your repertoire, and that's that's always good to have. And having it run by not a, just a bunch of white people is also a really good sign. Um, I know Taika Waititi is only one of the many producers and creators behind it. He, he's a name that I recognize, so he's the name that I keep going back to. But Reservation Dogs, I cannot recommend it enough if you are into that kind of off-kilter humor. Moving on to our news and announcements segment, Dark Knights of Steel. I'm super excited about this project coming from DC. It will be 12 issues that have no release date yet, but most likely will be in November or December for the first issue. This is the birth of an all you DC universe, swords, sorcery, and superheroes by Tom Taylor with Yasmin Putri on art. This is going to be a Game of Thrones style fantasy world. Tom Taylor does a fee goddamn nominal job of writing what you might call Elseworlds 
books for DC. He's done, well, he's about to do one for Marvel as well with the Middle Ages. Is that what it's called? Yeah, the the Middle Ages uh, Marvel thing he's doing. But he's done Deceased, uh, Injustice, I'm sure several other... Um, several other non-canon Batman things. I think he's doing The Detective right now, which is another non-canon Batman story. Uh, and here we have another non-canon DC story, Dark Knights of Steel, run by Tom Taylor. Yasmin Putri is a gorgeous artist. Um, she is a just stunning digital painter, and having her on the interiors in every sense, line work and colors, is going to be incredible for this. Um, the only line of the solicitation that I have here, it says, this world will be changed when a spaceship crash lands from a doomed planet. But what seems like the end of the world for many is only the beginning of this story. Presumably Superman's story is what they're referencing there. Um, but we're going to have to wait and see because the cover of this issue has, uh, what appears to be Superman's parents pregnant with him. So... Uh, I'm very curious what, how the, what, what, what this is all going to start out as. We have some quotes from Tom Taylor here. It says, Combining two of my favorite things, DC superheroes and high fantasy, is my absolute happy place. I grew up reading Lord of the Rings alongside Superman, Terry Pratchett alongside Garth Ennis, Robin Hobb and Mark Wade, Dragonlance and Justice League. Now I get to bring all of this together with the incredible Yasmin Putri and the biggest story I could imagine. A tale of war and love, of despair and hope, of betrayal and improbable alliances forged in battle. It says it promises an all-new origin for Superman and Batman, for Harley Quinn, and for Black Lightning. Taylor says that the series is for fans of shows like Game of Thrones and Critical Role. This is for the kids who took dice to school, who chose their own adventure, and who dreamed of flying in a cape. We obviously understand a lot of those references, um, being mostly D&D &D and other tabletop games, as well as just superhero stuff, so... I, this is, where can you go wrong, honestly? To make things even better, you have variants for the first issue by Wayne Reynolds and Joshua Middleton, and this really awesome stats variant for Superman by Yasmin Putri. Um, it's it's like it's him standing there with his character design with all his stats around him. This is a D&D &D book for DC Comics. Yes! <laughs> I am in. Count me in. I'm there. We also have the official casting, or the important casting, for Wednesday on Netflix. I was not aware that Netflix was making a show about Wednesday Addams. I was even less aware that it is produced by Tim Burton. But it is. And so I'm excited for it, I think. We have the casting announcements that were made this week. Jenna Ortega is playing Wednesday Adams. The only thing that I have seen her in was Yesterday. Uh, she was, I believe, the oldest daughter in that. She was very well done, very well acted, I guess. And then we have Louise, Louise Guzman and Catherine Zeta-Jones are joining the cast to play Gomez and Morticia Adams alongside Jenna Ortega's Wednesday. And once again, yes, this is a Tim Burton project, which I like... Tim Burton and Netflix. I just never saw that coming. I feel like Tim Burton is like an old school kid. <laughs> I guess not. Netflix is not old school. Uh, what it says here for the description of the show, it says, Wednesday Adams' misadventures as a new student at Nevermore Academy, a very unique boarding school snuggled in the deepest New England. 
I feel like I should say forest, whatever. Wednesday's attempts to master her emerging psychic ability thwart a monstrous killing spree that has terrorized the local town and solved the supernatural mystery that embroiled her parents 25 years ago, all while navigating her new and very tangled relationships at Nevermore. This really um, makes me think of um, Hotel Transylvania, oddly enough. Um... <laughs> Uh, and uh, uh, the, ki the Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. I think if I was going to have one show that I'm going to assume it's going to be like, I definitely feel they're going to aim this to be very much in the vein of Sabrina, the new Sabrina show that was on Netflix, which was a whole new take on the character, but was very much uh, a pleasure to see as a fan. So I'm thinking they're probably going to be going along that same vein for this Wednesday show. There's a number of other characters that they have announced, but who have not been cast yet. Uh, Enid Sinclair is a werewolf and she has a sunny California smile and disposition. Tyler Galpin is a sensitive, dysfunctional uh, child with a weird relationship with his father, the sheriff. Xavier Thorpe is comes from wealth and privilege. Pri I can't speak today. Privilege. Bianca Barkley is the closest thing the Academy has to royalty. Principal Weems clashes with Willa. I don't even know who Willa is. She's not on this list of characters. Is that what they're going to call Wednesday? Okay. Uh, Dr. Kinbot is an eccentric love of taxidermy and candles. Uh, Sheriff Galpin is the father of that kid, Tyler, and Mrs. Novak is the teacher at the academy. Um, so it's gonna be definitely a, like, teenage team-up show. Team-up? Group? Whatever. Um, coming-of-age thing, I think. It's scheduled for eight hour-long episodes, and will be happening in, hopefully, fall 2022, or possibly early 2023. There's also uh, the casting announced this week for the live-action Avatar on Netflix. I did not know they were going to be doing a live-action Avatar on Netflix. I kind of don't want them to do a live-action Avatar on Netflix. But there's a few things here that keep me a little bit more, like, happy about this, I guess. Um, and that is that they have cast um, and that the people all behind the scenes are very much insistent that they want indigenous or Asian actors uh, and or Asian actors. So that's already far and, far and above, uh, let's see, the last live action Avatar adaption, as well as the last Netflix live action manga adaption, which was Death Note, which neither of which project we like to talk about here in this house, but... Um, <laughs> Hopefully this will be better than both of those. Uh, what we have for the cast, Gordon Cormier is going to be playing Aang. He was going to be 12 years old in the show. Uh, Kai... Ooh. Kai Wentio, I'm so sorry, is going to be playing Katara, who will be 14. Ian Usli will be playing Sokka at 16. And Dallas Liu will be playing Zuko, who is doesn't have an age listed next to his name. Um, Albert Kim, who worked on Sleepy Hollow as well as Nikita, is the showrunner. I did watch Sleepy Hollow. It was pretty good, but they had some things that went a weird direction at the end of the series. Um, the executive producer and writer of the series as well is Alan Kim. Um, 
and then is going to be executive produced by Dan Lin, Michael Goy, and Lindsay Libertor. Uh, co-executive produced by Roseanne Liang, as well as directed by Roseanne Liang and Javar Rezani. Um, it is billed as an authentic, quote, authentic adaption of the award-winning beloved Nickelodeon series Avatar The Last Airbender, reimagined as a live-action adventure. There was also some discussion in the article that I was reading about this, which you can find pretty much on any pop culture news site, uh, talking about how the writer was very, very insistent on having the correct castings, like I said, indigenous and Asian people behind or in front of the camera as well as behind, which is already several steps ahead of those other two failures of movies that I mentioned before. So, um, and one last thing about this is the character or the actor who's playing, uh, Zuko, Dallas Liu is apparently going to star, not star, but he's going to be in the Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings, Legend of the Ten Rings movie next month. And then Kiao Wen Tio, I'm so sorry. Well, uh, she will also be heard in a voice on Marvel's animated hit series. What if, Although I don't know what that is yet. So, things to look forward to. The last major topic that I want to hit on here before we wrap the episode up is Tim Drake joining the queer community. This week in Batman Urban Legends number 6, Tim Drake rescued an old friend of his, Bernard, from a cult who had been kidnapping kids all over the city. At the end of the story, Bernard asked him out on a date, an offer which we hear Tim say yes. Uh, he also implies that he's had feelings for Bernard for quite some time and has somewhat compartmentalized this aspect of his personality to kind of avoid it. Uh, he has had off and on again relationships with Stephanie Brown since her introduction 25 years ago, and it has been suggested that he and Connor Kent may have been more than just friends. I found an article on Nerdist that I am completely blown away by, and I'm going to be reading this article. It's only a few paragraphs, so it should only take a few minutes, but this, I was so incredibly impressed. The writer of this article is Eric Diaz, just spelled normal D-I-A-Z. Um, I'm going to go ahead and, and read this now. I this is, this is hitting on every single point that I wanted to hit on. Um, in a way that is just written so beautifully. So I'm just going to go ahead and read this. Again, this is by uh, Nerdist writer Eric Diaz regarding Tim Drake's bisexuality. But Tim being queer... Sorry, let me try again. But Tim Drake being queer is important for other outside-the-narrative reasons. For decades, Batman and Robin as a concept have been subject of hateful jokes and homophobic innuendo. This goes all the way back to 1954, when a psychiatrist named Frederick Wortham published a book called The Seduction of the Innocent. His book claimed comic books were perverting the minds of the young readers. Comics made children violent and antisocial, in his view. And readers like and characters like Batman and Robin got the most damning read from Wortham. He stated their relationship, which was always painted as paternal, was a, quote, a wish and a dream of two homosexuals living together. Conservative 1950s parents freaked out and the sales of comic books tanked. The entire industry came this close to the brink of ruin all over one man's opinion. 
DC survived the comics purge, but they made changes to appease the homophobia of suburban American parents. The creation of Batwoman as a potential girlfriend for Batman was part of this. Her civilian name was Kathy Kane, and she, came, and she had a niece named Betty, who, came, who became Batgirl. She was, of course, also a girlfriend for Robin. This would be put the minds of parents at ease, making sure the comics wouldn't turn their children into, quote, deviants. By making Tim Drake canonically queer, DC has decided to take all of those, quote, boy wonder queer associations and turn them into a positive and not a negative. Instead of something to fight against, Robin's queerness is now something to embrace and celebrate. In a sense, by making Tim Drake bisexual, it's an inversion of the homophobic panic that forced DC to make the original Robin, quote, extra straight as a response. This is all similar to turning a negative response to a positive action, which is what DC did with Batwoman in 2006. The editors at DC Comics created Kathy Kane to make Batman appear hetero to readers in the 1950s. When Kate Kane hit the scene in a rebooted version, DC deliberately made her a lesbian as a statement against the homophobia that precipitated her creation in the first place. Tim Drake is now following the very same tradition. What hopefully DC does now is not make this a one-off story. DC, sorry, Tim can't date Bernard for two issues, then never mention being a bisexual man ever again. There simply aren't enough bisexual male superheroes to shrug this one off after one story, all as a way of checking a diversity box. On the flip side, my fellow queer readers need to understand that if Robin dates women again, it is not a betrayal of his queerness. If Catman, <laughs> Catwoman, Harley Quinn, and Poison Ivy can have relationships with both men and women, then so can Robin. DC also needs to be careful not to fall into the trap of making this aspect of Tim's personality the impetus of all the stories surrounding him. Tim has always struggled with, with a bit of quote-unquote forgotten Robin syndrome, and that despite being the first Robin to get his own monthly comic book and being, canonically, the smartest Robin. Dick Grayson is forever the first Robin, while Jason Todd is always the one who died. Carrie Kelly is the female Robin, while Damian Wayne is the Robin who was Batman's biological son. I hope they make well-rounded Tim Drake stories that involve his queer identity going forward, and without making his whole identity just the queer Robin. I trust DC's current creators to do the right thing. Because, of course, there's much more to Tim as a character, but they can't turn the clock back now on his sexuality either and must fully embrace all aspects of the character, just as they would do for any cisgender hetero hero. Robin deserves nothing more. Again, that was by Nerdist writer Eric Diaz. Um, incredibly impressive, um, in my mind. A very, very clear portrayal as to why this is a big deal and why this needs to continue being an important deal. Um... I just, I I really wanted to mention all of those points from Seduction of the Innocent, what I consider an evil man who wrote that. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I really do. Uh, I consider that kind of viewpoint evil. And yes, there were things written in comics back in the day that never should have appeared in comics that were themselves very, very evil. <laughs> um, and that was just like a logic thing. You just logically just don't put that out there because then you're not like... Hitler. It's basically what you're writing. Uh, it was some horrifying stuff that some people put out, but it wasn't DC and Marvel putting these things out there, or I guess timely as they may have been at the time. Um, it's, it's a harsh history that queers and comics have had to get over, and it is still going. It is constantly an issue. Um, and having this step taken 
this is a good step. And I am very happy to see that for the most part, I'm not seeing a lot of people thinking that this is some, you know, quote unquote, woke BS, you know, whatever it is people say. It's not. It's real and it's true and it's grounded in honest things. And I I think that's the best thing you can ask for from a character who is a superhero is to be grounded and honest. The last thing I want to talk about on this episode is just a little fun thing real quick. It's just a brief little thing. Um, I watched The Jungle Cruise over the weekend, last weekend. I really liked it for the most part. It was obviously really cheesy and lame, um, but it was fun. I had a ton of fun watching it. However, it is just like The Mummy. It is basically a point-for-point remake of The Mummy. Let's go through this. Turn-of-the-century woman who can't get her self-taken seriously with her research. She has a silly and useless brother who gets more taken seriously because he's a man. They find a local ruffian because they want to hunt down treasure. Uh, lost treasure. Them, the two of them and the local ruffian are the cheap hunters compared to the wealthy villains who are also hunting the same lost treasure. The treasure turns out to have a very big secret. A big, evil, ancient, unkillable guy is under a terrible curse due to his crimes of his lifetime due to this treasure. Uh, It's basically all the points that were related, but you get it. It's like the mummy. Also, while we're talking about the mummy, uh, does anybody else have their sexual awakening as a child by watching the mummy? Because I definitely did. Between that and George the Jungle, I, it it makes sense why I'm a bisexual adult woman. Oh, and that wraps up today's episode of Sensational She Geek live from Yancey Street. This is a long episode. Um, I thank you, as always, for whatever portion of the episode that you did get to listen to or that you cared to listen to. I appreciate any support in any way that it can be given. The best way to support the podcast is to share it. Uh, with other people who you think may find it interesting or educational or entertaining or, I don't know, fun to make fun of. If you're listening to it, I don't really care why. (laughs) Um, If you do have any questions, comments, concerns, things like that, um, this podcast is available pretty much everywhere podcasts stream. So go ahead and like, subscribe, contact me in whichever way the streaming service you're on um, allows. This is also all over YouTube. So if you would like to comment on YouTube. That's another availability. Um, and it's all in a playlist on YouTube as well, so that it's all in order in the same place. Uh, thank you again for listening to this podcast episode. One thing to note is that tonight, Friday the 13th of August 2021, is the finale of The Bad Batch. Um, and I believe the title of the episode is Camino Lost. So... There's going to be some feels up in this bitch tonight. (laughs) And I will talk about this episode of The Bad Bad, the finale episode, on Monday's 30A episode. 30! Wow, look at that. We're getting towards 60 here. Um, We're also going to be talking on Monday about the comic book pull list, things that are going to be coming out next week, and whatever other fun stuff happens in media that's related to comics between now and then, because there is always something happening. As you can see for this week, we had several announcements, several big news points, several TV shows, and then also our regular comic book chat. So there's always something to talk about um, and always something to get sweaty about. Getting sweaty is when you get so excited about something that you actually kind of start sweating and you're like pumped up and you're like, oh, this is so exciting. You hear me do it I get sweaty on the podcast all the time. It's when I can't get the words out because I'm just so pumped up. (laughs) Anyway, 
have a great weekend. It's Friday the 13th. I hope you have an excellent lucky day. Um, I hope your weekend is additionally lucky. Do not get sunburnt or dehydrated if you can help it. Also, don't get freezing if that's a thing that's an issue in your area. Drink water, don't be a dickhead, and always stay sweaty about your hobbies. <laughs>